Welcome to the eighth podcast in the Financial Framework series. Financial Frameworks is dedicated to helping you create a stronger financial decision-making process by using interdisciplinary tools that makes finance personal and integrates your values with these tools. Do you enjoy learning by doing things and testing ideas? Do you feel that you are making good decisions and would like to understand more about how you do that? And always my third question, do you know what you don't know about solid financial decision-making? If those questions resonate and this approach makes sense to you, you should find this helpful. If it doesn't strike a chord, maybe it will at some later time and you will be interested in listening then. I'm Mike Lehan, the author of Financial Frameworks. I have taught finance to operations managers for 18 years and I'm bringing what worked there to the internet in 15 to 20 minute segments. Hopefully these podcasts will ignite the desire for more knowledge about making solid financial decisions. In the first Financial Frameworks podcast, we talked about two specific frameworks or models for you to consider when analyzing financial issues. The first model was simply to compare cost and resulting worth or value. That is, you look at what something costs, you include all the costs, and then compare the costs with the value or benefits or profit that you would be receiving in the future. That determines whether the expense was worthwhile. That's a very simple sort of root type of framework. The second framework expanded that into greater details and organized them into seven areas. Today's podcast will describe that seven-part framework in further detail and will focus on the importance of integrating those tools with your values. Your decisions need to be consistent with your values in order to be the best possible decisions. Again, incorporating values in financial decisions is not difficult, but it does demand clarity and discipline. When analyzing a financial choice, I find that this seven-part framework is useful whether the analysis is simple, and I use it as a checklist, or the analysis is more detailed, requiring notes, calculations, and a written description. In the latter case, my first step is to fill in blanks, then secondly, determine which elements are the most important for the problem under consideration. So let's walk through the framework via two examples. As we go through them, I want you to be asking two questions repeatedly. Ask yourself, does this make sense? And secondly, what is he leaving out from your perspective? Okay, financial decision-making a seven-part framework. Number one, what is the objective of the analysis? What problem am I solving or what opportunity am I weighing? For our first example, we will examine the options for a person who up until now has been earning $35,000 a year and working two jobs. This person has been offered a $72,000 a year job, also in their field, but it's in a large metropolitan setting on the east coast of the U.S. that will require relocating and also has a higher cost of living. So in considering the offer, there are multiple objectives in addition to just a straight cost versus worth. The workload will change. Going from two jobs to one with different responsibilities will be a shift. The new job will be in the person's area of expertise. Number two, there's potential career advancement in the new organization. Number three, will a different organizational setting be helpful or hindering? This person hasn't worked there before. 
Number four, if a recession hits, is this a good place to be in this new metropolitan area or sticking with the current situation? The intangibles relating to professional relationship possibilities. The person would be able to network. It's a bigger market. There would be more outside traffic. And those are just the larger intangibles. Those are elements of the objective of the analysis. We want to make sure we're solving the right problem. In addition to dollars and cents, it's all of those things. Number two, what is the cost of doing this? Is there a price in making this job switch? Number one, the living costs will be increased. We think that the salary will cover the increased living costs. We know that the monthly uh, rent or living space will be about $1,000 or more than they are now. And we know that food costs will go up by 20%. Gasoline costs will go up slightly. Uh, those are the things that we know about. We have to assume that there will be other costs increased. Second cost, relocation costs. Third, there is no loss of income. It's not uh, as if the person has to shell out uh, twenty-five dollars or $50,000 to get the job. Number three, the estimated worth or value of the new job. We're looking into the future here. Number one, we don't have to look far into the future because the salary increases by more than 100%. It more than doubles to 72,000. And that's immediate. We don't have to look into the future for that. Another value element is career advancement. Another value element is increased networking opportunities. We mentioned that in the objective, but that's definitely a plus. And then fourth, there is the possibility that this organization will recognize this person's skills and values better than their current organization. The fourth step, we do a risk assessment. What could happen in this that would cause this person harm? Have they done the due diligence to confirm that the job has the potential that they believe and that the firm is established and stable and can weather economic crises? The job in the firm is within the person's area of expertise, so there's no risks in having to learn a new skill set. Number three, the metropolitan area is large. The immediate setting for the business is upscale. So in terms of a recession, there is some short term, but we don't think that there's long term. Number five, which is really the focus of today's podcast, what are the person's values in financial terms? How do they see this objective contributing to their future? And are they looking at it clearly and reasonably objectively, or are there biases that are omitting some important facts? The first question that I asked the person is, what is the likelihood that you will receive a 100% salary increase from some other source? Secondly, are you looking at this position because in your current situation you're unhappy and you simply want to make a change? The third question is, are you risk averse or are you fairly healthy in terms of risk? And are you assessing this as a significant opportunity? Doubling your salary in one move doesn't happen every day. So those three questions should get to the expression of the person's values in financial terms. The sixth element in this framework is the context of the analysis. The timing, external factors, 
industry issues, business cycle considerations. We know that the economy is fragile and has been for some time. That's why interest rates are so low. However, right now, employment levels are rising and employers are having difficulty filling jobs. This person's job is in a technical area that has some stability. So in terms of the economy, the industry, and the skill sets, the context appears to be solid as possible in an inflationary and semi-COVID world. COVID could return, but that is a risk that all businesses bear. So the context does not appear to produce any significant negative considerations. The seventh element of this cost versus worth framework, I ask people to make sure that they understand that money, capital, assets are not static and that they take into consideration the future value of the benefits that they're going to be receiving and compare them with the costs. In this particular situation, the costs are not huge. The benefits are immediate. They're not a year out or two years out, or it's not like trying to figure out whether an annuity or an index fund will actually pay what it has for the last five years. The rewards are fairly immediate here. And the financial gain is so significant that we don't need to do an ROI calculation. We don't need to do any discounting or calculating out into the future to assess a net present value. That would not be a good use of time. So our conclusion. The most important factors are the professional advancement and the increased salary that occurs immediately. The increased salary, we believe, reflects increased responsibilities. It's a much higher platform on which to build future salary increases. Risk factors are always there, but the market and the industry in which the person will be working appear to be stable. The person involved in the decision agreed with this analysis and has taken the position. I hope as we went through these seven steps, you were asking the questions that I asked at the beginning. Is anything being left out? Does this make sense? You might also ask, has he considered all perspectives? If you have suggestions or you have thoughts, I'd be very interested in hearing them at finframeworks.com. Now let's apply the framework to something straightforward with the arithmetic being the focal point purchasing an investment asset. An individual in their late 20s has saved $5,000 and wants that $5,000 to grow in value and is willing to not touch it for at least five years if that's possible. They'll work very hard to not touch it. Okay, number one, what is the objective? At first, it appears that the objective is to select some sort of investment that can be purchased with $5,000 that will increase appreciably. Appreciably was not immediately quantified um, by the investor. Upon examination, there are two other objectives. The person wants to keep the money as safe as possible, and they also want to learn about investment while this is going on. The first task is to be clear about what the goals in terms of growth are and the safety of funds. Quantifying them is difficult, but most people can tell after you've made an attempt to quantify them they can tell when they are comfortable or uncomfortable with the levels of growth and the levels of safety. They can usually tell you whether safety is more important than rapid growth. Or another way that I usually ask the question, if you lose some of the money over the next year, but over five years or 10 years, the asset grows 
insignificant value, will that be all right? Can you put up with temporary losses? For purposes of this example, we'll assume that the person says they want some of both, some growth, and they will accept some risk. The conversation with the person focused on potential gains over a five-year period, and the discussion was limited to either a stock, an index fund, or a U.S. Treasury bond for a couple of safety reasons. We selected these options because these assets are traded in large markets that are regulated and required to be orderly markets. What that means is that if you want to sell something, there will be a buyer. That's an orderly market. That's a form of safety, and it's an insurance against being stuck with an asset that nobody else wants or is hard to sell. Another safety feature is that all three entities are subject to regulatory scrutiny and significant amounts of information are available in the public record to make informed judgments, and if those statements are incorrect, there are penalties for the falsehoods. In addition to meeting these safety objectives, it addresses a long-term risk elimination objective. The investor has said that they don't know much about investing and intend to learn, but they don't want to lose money while they are learning. The investor recently watched a YouTube video of Warren Buffett advising beginners or those who don't have the time to follow individual stocks to invest in an S&P 500 index fund. He said that the value will go up and down, and over the long term, the fund should perform well. It should perform as well as the United States economy. The index fund won't go through the roof, but it won't tank either. It will behave like the broader stock market, which, like the United States economy, Buffett has confidence in. That was good enough for me, the investor said. So the overall objective is now in place. Long or medium-term growth with reasonable safety. And we have chosen the vehicle as being an index fund. Element two of the framework. What is the cost? This part is pretty straightforward. We will look at S&P 500 index funds and determine which one is best based on our criteria above. We will refine these criteria as we define the value that we're looking for. We have a funding limit of $5,000. There is one other cost element, and that is opportunity cost. Not buying something else or spending the $5,000 on something else. The investor is aware of that. Number three, what is the future value of the investment? Cost versus worth again. Now we're talking about worth. We know the overall objective, balanced growth and safety. And now we'll look more closely at specific S&P 500 index funds to look for differences, details that we understand, and also to learn about the stock market. Our research shows that the Standard & Poor's 500 index is a listing of a collection or a basket of 500 stocks selected for reporting the general behavior, sort of like a thermometer, of the entire U.S. stock market. This basket of stocks is selected by the S&P Dow Jones Indices Company, a private company. The S&P 500 index reports on the value of and the increase or decrease in the value of these 500 stocks every day. Participants in the stock market have, over the years, agreed that this index is useful, that it's a good way of looking at stock market behavior, and various financial firms like Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab or BlackRock 
have created financial instruments that are intended to mirror or behave like the S&P 500 index. Our question now is to do our due diligence and research which funds match the investor's values as best as we can determine. When performing investment research, I recommend that you don't start from scratch. Why reinvent the wheel if somebody else has already done it and you can build on their work and save time? Using Google, I checked to see if anyone out there has done research similar to what we're doing here. And surprise, surprise, uh, there is. There's a lot of articles about the S&P 500 index and the funds associated. So you can build on screening that a brokerage firm or a business publication or an investment service has already done. I've mentioned Yahoo Finance in the past. Reuters also has good information. Those are great places to look. So when their names come up on my Google search, I pay attention to them. My first search terms were, how many S&P 500 index funds are there? This query produced answers ranging from many to 14. Several articles popped up, some by Forbes magazine, Bankrate had one, NerdWallet had a good article. However, I read in detail a posting on Fool.com because years ago I'd read a book written by the co-founders of The Motley Fool, uh, wrote about value investing primarily, and I found them to be credible. Their article included points from the others and added a few caveats regarding types of index funds that probably, given our criteria, should be avoided, leveraged uh, funds. The Motley Fool presented a couple of charts, one comparing their top three recommended funds, returns for one, three, and five years, as well as a chart showing expense ratios and the size of the funds, the fund assets. The three funds that they recommended were the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF, and the SPDR S&P 500 ETF Trust. All three funds showed five-year returns of about 18.5%. This podcast will not recommend a specific fund because we don't do that here. A person recommending a specific stock to you has a fiduciary responsibility to you, and that means that they should know in significant detail what your goals and objectives are, and they will stand behind your choices. This is an informational and an educational podcast, not an investment advisory service. So we'll just pick the interest rate that they produce, 18.5%, and we will project future returns of 15%. We're going to be somewhat conservative and say that uh, we think with inflation and other issues, 18.5 might be achieved. It's always better to under-promise and over-perform. So if we hit 18.5%, that's great. But we will project 15% returns compounded annually. With that, the original 5,000, if invested today, five years from today at 15%, should be worth $10,056.79. That sentence seems cut and dried, And the tendency is to read something like that and assume that it is an unemotional, logical straight line from now to the five years. That is far from the truth. There will be ups and downs. That's why we asked about temporary losses at the beginning. So now we have some numbers. We have the cost, 5,000. We have the future value, 10,056.79. We've outlined some of the variables of the process. 
and my investor friend now has to consider is $10,056 enough? Are they willing to experience this process? We've looked at it from a number of angles. But the fourth element of the cost versus worth is a separate risk assessment exercise. We revisit the original objectives, we look at the choice of investment, and we catalog any risks that we may have overlooked. Did we factor in inflation? What if there is a global slowdown caused by the Russian-Ukraine war? We talked about that, and I responded by asking the person to look at what happened to stocks and earnings in February and March of 2020. In less than three weeks, the Standard & Poor's 500 index lost over 25% of its value. People were very worried. People were very upset. It was an extremely emotional time. Here we are now, two years later, that 25% has been recovered, and the S&P 500 index has added another 30%. I asked the person to look at the parallels, look at the differences, try to think about what it would have been like to have experienced this back in 2020, and think about their choices. The fifth element is revisiting the objectives again, but in a different way. What are our the person's values in financial terms. We will use this as a checklist to ask our 28-year-old investor friend shooting for 15%, does what we have picked make them nervous? Are they comfortable? This is purely intuitive. Should the goals be dialed back? Does the person want to aim higher? Initially, these questions produce statements of feelings, but within a fairly short time, the feelings emerge in the form of quantitative statements. Yes, I do want to achieve $10,056. No, I'll be happy with $8,000 and less risk. This determines whether we did a good job in the objective setup, because if we didn't, we will have to revisit uh, a number of issues. But if we did, this should be a confirmation process. The sixth element in this framework is to look again at the context. We've already looked at it from uh, multiple perspectives, but a resilient organization or a resilient process looks at things from multiple angles. One of the questions for the context, is this a good time to invest for this person and given the markets, or should they leave their money sitting on the sidelines because they're so concerned about a recession that they would rather have the money sitting there in cash and absorb the inflation loss? Those were the questions asked. Number seven is looking at the time value of money. We've done this. We compounded our projected returns. We looked out into the future. We didn't do any net present valuing. We didn't do any discounting and comparing it with 30-year treasury bond because the person is a beginning investor, and those variables would have only confused and muddied the waters. We excluded these choices based on balance and growth and safety and the person's comprehension with this process. As the person learns more, if they choose to, and I think this person will, when comparing alternatives, we will add additional layers to the analysis. Conclusion. The investor selected one of the three index funds, committed the 5,000, and is slowly beginning their education process. This is not to say that this was a smooth and comfortable process. This is being summarized in a few minutes. This occurred over time. A lot of back and forth, a lot of what is really going on here. 
time was spent reviewing the decision-making process, digesting choices, highlighting what the person knew, and spending time looking at what would require further work to build an investing foundation and a more complete framework. This person is committed to that research, I believe. We have completed working through this framework. Some steps were time-consuming and some were checklist tasks. In some ways, this list reflects my fascination with highly resilient organizations. As there is some redundancy, there's some overlap throughout, but in each step, the focus is not on the overlap, but on the element of the decision-making process that needs to be looked at by itself in order for the process to be complete and thorough. With that said, it seems to me that some words from a greatly admired person are appropriate to conclude this episode and get ready for the next one. That person is Admiral James Stockdale. This quotation is taken from an excellent book, Good to Great, How Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't, by Jim Collins. Collins quotes an interview with Admiral Stockdale, who was treated brutally as a prisoner of war, the highest ranking prisoner of war held in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Admiral Stockdale stated, This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Include that in your financial frameworks, and the outcomes should be rewarding. I hope that you have found this useful. I look forward to bringing you Financial Frameworks Podcast 9, in which we will talk about reading financial statements, finding the meat, and not going to sleep in the process. Thank you for listening. Mike Lehan.